Welcome to QuackCast 44. Now, there are those of you who may be keeping score and have realized that somewhere along the line, I screwed up the numbering of my podcasts. And I've been too damn lazy to go back and fix it. But to my counting, this is QuackCast 44, nine questions, nine answers, a reworking of a science-based medicine blog of late. This is not an easy podcast to write, because I have to choose. I started this podcast with the idea that I would explore the medical literature as it applies to scams, but over time I have come to realize that the problem is the nonsense and misinformation that is far more pernicious and damaging to healthcare. And where does one start in such a target-rich environment? The Huffington Post? Dr. Oz? The Natural News? Well, the volume of nonsense is enormous on the interwebs, but for goofiness that rivals that of the health ranger, or even, dare I say it, the whale, head on over to medicalvoices.org, where their motto is, Critical Thinking for a Critical Dilemma. The site is mostly bereft of critical thinking, as least as I understand the concept, which requires, oh, I don't know, maybe reading and understanding the literature on vaccinations? As opposed to many of their writers who seem to pull information out of their coffee high colonic, he says in an attempt to keep his iTunes rating. Apparently, every piece of nonsense ever found about vaccinations has found its way into this site. It is the vaccine bizarro world, where almost all the information is the exact opposite of reality. Do opposite of all science things. Us hate science. Us love irrational nonsense. It's big crime to understand anything real on bizarromedicalvoices.org. I hope DC Comics doesn't come after me for that. One essay in particular that has caught my attention is a bit of whimsy called Plan 9 from Out... No, wait. Not Plan 9. Just nine questions that stump every pro-vaccine advocate and their claims by... David Mahalovic, if I pronounce that right, M-I-H-A-L-O-V-I-C, N-D, which stands for not doctor. Mr. Mahalovic identifies himself as a naturopathic medical doctor who specializes in vaccine research. However, just where that research is published is uncertain, as his name yields no publications on PubMed. However, I am a beer researcher, because I have the same credentials as Mr. Mahalovic, as an aside, naturopathic and medical. If there were ever two words that did not belong together, it is those two. The nine questions show up frequently on the interwebs, similar to questions one is supposed to ask when one wants to stump an evolutionist. Like the supposed stumpers of evolution, the vaccine questions are grounded in either misinformation and it's not the misinformation over the Geologic Podcast, but also grounded in willful ignorance or laziness. So let's go through the nine questions, which I suppose correspond to the nine Nazgul. Number one, could you please provide one double-blind, placebo-controlled study that can prove the safety and effectiveness of vaccines? One trial 
That's it? Just one? It took me 55 seconds to find the efficacy of the 23-valent pneumococcal vaccine in preventing pneumonia and improving survival in nursing home residents, double-blind, randomized, and placebo-controlled trial. And that includes the time to boot my browser, Chrome is pretty fast, and misspell the search terms. Using the search terms vaccine, efficacy, randomized placebo-controlled trial gives 416 PubMed results. Add safety to the search term, you get 126 returns. That is easily more than one. Of course, to find them, you have to look. Now, if I were in my local brew pub researching IPAs, and as I mentioned, I am a beer researcher, and some anti-vaxxer came up to me drinking, oh, probably a Coors Light, I would wager, and demanded a reference, I would be stymied. I don't carry specific references in my head, but nowadays I would whip out my trusty droid and have the reference in a trice. I use words like trice when drinking beer. But then, I am a highly educated, perhaps overeducated, adult who constantly searches the web for medical information. For hoots and giggles, I ask my 12-year-old son, whose passions are basketball and filming comedy videos, to find me a reference that met the same criteria. And I timed him. 22 seconds to find randomized placebo-controlled trial of inactivated poliovirus vaccine in Cuba from the New England Journal of Medicine. 12-year-old one, Mihalovic zero. Served. Of course, as I think about it, I can't find one. No matter how I narrow my search terms, I always find more than one reference. He's right. It's like a Lay's potato chip. I cannot stop at one. He's correct. Curse you, Mahalovic, and your cunning naturopathic logic. Oh, by the way, as long as we are on the topic, since he evidently places a great store in science, could Mahalovic please provide one double-blind, placebo-controlled study that would prove the safety and efficacy of naturopathy. I would be happy at this point to know that you can do a PubMed search correctly just to make me look like a fool. And believe me, that ain't hard to do. Question de. Could you please provide scientific evidence of any, the any is in capitals, study which can confirm the long-term safety and effectiveness of vaccines. Well, long-term is vague. What is long-term? Smallpox disappeared in 1976, thanks to the vaccine. I have not seen a case of smallpox in my medical career, which is now on its 31st year. And so there are no long-term reported side effects of the smallpox vaccine in about 35 years. No reported long-term toxicities and eradication of smallpox seem to be reasonable evidence to me of their long-term effectiveness. Now, no vaccine is 100% in efficacy. And whether infected naturally or by way of a vaccine, immunity always wanes with time. In earlier times, people would have their immunity boosted by exposure to disease and maintain their antibody levels and immunity. 
It is not the initial infection that may lead to a better immunity from natural infections, as posited by some anti-vaccine people, but probably the fact that people used to be constantly re-exposed to wild-type disease. It is interesting what has been happening with shingles. Everybody used to get chickenpox as a kid, and then, as they raised their kids and their grandkids, got re-exposed to the virus and boosted their antibody. Currently, due to the chickenpox vaccine and a change in the way we raise children, older adults are not getting exposed naturally to chickenpox. Their immunity is waning, and now there is an increase in shingles in older adults. Part of why the elderly need the zoster vaccine. Clever conspiracy, huh? Kids get vaccinated, then the adults will get more reactivation chicken pox, so adults will need a vaccine as well. Big Pharma is so good at inventing diseases to sell their products. Unless exposed to new infection, immunity as measured by antibody levels directed against the infecting agent can wane over time. That is to be expected. The nice thing about the immune system is, unlike homeopathic water, it actually remembers the prior infection. The immune system is primed so that if it is exposed again at a later date, it can almost instantly produce large amounts of antibody to nip the infection in the bud. But, rather than prevent infection, some people far removed in time from the vaccine may instead have a shorter, less severe illness and be infectious for not as long a period of time, thereby decreasing potential disease spread. There is a nice review in the New England Journal of Medicine on the duration of immunity. It is, by the way, the first search in PubMed using duration of immunity and vaccine as a search result. I got the result in 17 seconds, including correcting typos. I mean, seriously, just how hard is it to find this information? Maybe computer skills are not part of naturopathic training, but you know, you can always ask a librarian to help you. As would be expected, duration of immunity depends on the disease and the vaccine. Live vaccines are better than killed. They estimated the half-life of varicella zoster immunity to be 50 years, 200 years for measles and mumps. So all those people who will live to be 200 using naturopathic medicine will probably need to get their vaccine. And 11 years for tetanus. If you peruse the references, you can find other studies that show variable but sustained response to vaccines. For example, 90% of people maintain immunity to smallpox up to 75 years after vaccination. Now, long-term safety was more difficult to find articles. As best I could tell, five years was the limit of time I could find for safety studies, and those are with hepatitis B. It's safe, by the way. Most vaccine side effects are found in the first week after the inoculation, and most studies follow the patients for about a year. It would probably not cut it as long-term for Mahalovic. By the way, Mr. Mahalovic, could you please provide scientific evidence of any, again, any is in all caps, study which can confirm the long-term safety and effectiveness of naturopathy? Question Roman numeral three. Could you please provide scientific evidence which can prove that disease reduction in any part of the world at any point in history was attributable to inoculation of populations? Smallpox, 
Smallpox. Smallpox. Anyone? Smallpox. Euler. Euler. You don't know how much it pains me to make a Ben Stein joke after expelled. Oh, well, what's a quack cast without pop cultural references? Again, I get back to that whole binary, black and white approach that characterizes many with whom we cross medical intellectual swords. The decrease in infectious diseases has always been multifactorial due to improved nutrition, improved hygiene, let's hear it for the flush toilet, and understanding the epidemiology of diseases. Knowing how a disease is spread has always been critical in decreasing its incidence. The teasing out of effects of vaccines on population is always fraught with potential controversy. There are always multiple confounders. The best example, though, of the effects of vaccine can be found in JAMA, if you know how to do, oh, I don't know, a PubMed search. In the study, they looked at morbidity and mortality before and after widespread implementation of national vaccine recommendations. What did they find? A greater than 92% decline in cases and a 99% or greater decline in deaths due to diseases prevented by vaccines. Four, diphtheria, mumps, pertussis, and tetanus. Endemic transmission of polio virus and measles and rubella virus has been eliminated in the United States. This was obviously written before Dr. Wakefield and the anti-vaccine wackaloons have led to a decrease in the measles vaccination in the United States and Britain and subsequent increase in transmission of that disease in England and Britain. Smallpox has been eradicated worldwide. Declines were 80% or greater for cases and deaths of most vaccine-preventable diseases, including hepatitis A, acute hepatitis B, haemophilus type B, and varicella. Declines in cases and deaths of invasive strep pneumonia were 34% and 25% respectively, unquote. Seems pretty good to me. Mahalovic, could you please provide scientific evidence which can prove that disease reduction in any part of the world at any point in history was attributable to naturopathy? Please note, none, none, none of the interventions that have decreased the spread of infections in the last 200 years or so have come from the alt-med or naturopathic tradition. Seriously. The naturopaths and their ilk rail against modern medicine. Fine. It's full of problems. I don't doubt that. I've been in private practice now for 20 years, and I am more than aware of its failings and inequities. But what have the alternative medicine proponents ever contributed to the health of society? Name one area where any alt-med intervention has improved the human condition. Ichi ni san shi. Question shi. Could you please explain how the safety and mechanism of vaccines in the human body were scientifically proven if their pharmacokinetics the study of bodily absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion of ingredients are never examined or analyzed in any vaccine study. There is superficially some truth in this statement. Most pharmacokinetics are done prior to the clinical efficacy trials. That is why there are phase one and phase two trials. 
The assumption being that if you examine influenza vaccine pharmacokinetics in one group, it can be extrapolated to similar populations. I think that is reasonable. So no, there are no pharmacokinetic studies in the clinical efficacy trials. Those were done prior to the efficacy trials. But it is not hard to find phase one and phase two trials if you are so moved. By the way, Mahalovic, could you please explain how the safety and mechanism of naturopathic nostrums in the human body are scientifically proven if their pharmacokinetics, the study of bodily absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion of ingredients, are never examined or analyzed in any naturopathic nostrum study? Is this getting old? I don't know. There's something to be said for repetition. Question 5, s'il vous plaît. Could you please provide scientific justification as to how injecting a human being with a confirmed neurotoxin is beneficial to human health and prevents disease? I presume the issue here is mercury. It's kind of vague. Maybe aluminum. Maybe even tetanus toxoid. Or even, I suppose, he's interested in Botox. Now, that's a neurotoxin. But then maybe he knows someone who's getting kind of wrinkly and he's looking to give the medicine safely. Vaguer challenges, of course, are harder to meet. Let's stick with mercury and aluminum, or for our British listeners, aluminium. The latter is not in most vaccines, although has been discussed at length at science-based medicine. The amount of mercury and aluminium found in vaccines is minimal, and at the dosing and formulation has never been demonstrated to cause neurotoxicity in human beings. Of course, I am old school and think there's this dose response that the greater the amount leads to a greater response. Most naturopaths receive extensive training in homeopathy, where the less the amount, the greater the response. So smaller and smaller amounts of mercury and aluminum should have bigger and bigger toxicities in naturopathic-treated patients. But I presume arguments based on classical chemistry would have little meaning to an ND, not doctor, although I would not want my appletini made by a practitioner of homeopathy. Of course, it is not the neurotoxin that is being used to prevent disease, but the antigens of the potential infection. That is assuming that the author of the nine questions does not consider the antigens to be neurotoxins, and to judge from his understanding of disease later in his post, I'm not so certain he warrants the benefit of the doubt. By the way, Mr. Malovic, could you please provide scientific justification as to how applying naturopathy to a human being is beneficial to human health and prevents disease. Question VI. Can you provide a risk-benefit profile to show how the benefits of injecting a known neurotoxin exceeds its risk to human health for the intended goal of preventing disease? Well, since there is no longer mercury in most vaccines, I will assume, for the sake of argument, that he is referring to aluminum. A representative example. The risk from aluminum in the Haemophilus influenza type B vaccine, where aluminum is used as an adjuvant, the aluminum makes the antigens in the vaccine more potent to the immune system. Zero. The benefit from the vaccine, quote, 
From eight trials, the protective efficacy of the Haemophilus influenza B conjugate vaccine was 84% against invasive disease, 75% against meningitis, and 69% against pneumonia. Serious adverse effects were rare. Seems like a good trade-off. No risk from aluminum. Significant decrease in morbidity and mortality from disease. This is a better trade-off than cows or airbags, both of which kill about 20 people a year. Yep, 20 people or so are trampled to death by cattle every year, probably riding the cows into town to get a vaccine. If you really want to save lives, Mr. Mihalovic, get rid of cows. The seventh question. Could you please provide scientific justification on how bypassing the respiratory tract or mucous membrane is advantageous and how directly injecting virus into the bloodstream enhances immune function and prevents future infections? Well, things really get off the rails here. Vaccines are not injected into the bloodstream. They are injected into the soft tissues. At a simple level, an infection enters the body the body makes a variety of antibodies to the constituent parts of the infecting organism. And the next time the patient is exposed, the pre-existing antibody can, if there is a match with the new strain of infection, help inactivate the new infection. It doesn't matter how the antigen is presented to the immune system. The response is the same. Natural influenza, inhaled influenza vaccine, or injected influenza vaccine the same antibody will be made to the proteins presented to the immune system. Mihalovic says later, quotes, eh, I don't get this stuff. All promoters of vaccination fail to realize that the respiratory tract of humans, actually all mammals, contains antibodies which initiates natural immune responses within the respiratory tract mucosa. Bypassing this mucosal aspect of the immune system by directly injecting viruses into the bloodstream leads to a corruption in the immune system itself. As a result, the pathogenic viruses or bacteria cannot be eliminated by the immune system and remain in the body where they will further grow and or mutate as the individual is exposed to ever more antigens and toxins in the environment, which continue to assault the immune system, end quote. This is what we call in the trade gibberish. There are words and punctuation, and it looks on paper to have all the features I associate with a coherent written idea, yet... As the words pile up, there is no content. It seems to be the Oakland of writing. There's no there there. I will leave it to the listeners to search Bible code style for truthiness in the above selection. Maybe if you listen to the selection backwards, there will be a hidden meaning. Let me know. Question Henry VIII. Could you please provide scientific justification on how a vaccine could prevent viruses from mutating. Well, this is a very interesting question, but it has nothing to do with why we give vaccines. And I fear our intrepid ND, not doctor, 
does not have a firm grasp on what he is talking about. As he says, get ready, quote, Despite the injection of any type of vaccine, viruses continue circulating through the body, mutating and transforming into other organisms. The ability of a vaccine manufacturer to target the exact viral strain without knowing its mutagenic properties is equivalent to shooting a gun at a fixed target that has already been moved from its location. You should be shooting at what was, not what is, end quote. Mutating and transforming into other organisms. Sigh. Either the author is a sloppy writer, and sloppy writing, not typos, but logic and word selection, reflects a sloppy understanding, or his understanding of microbiology is so profoundly mistaken it boggles the mind that he can take care of patients. And in Oregon, he would be allowed by the state to prescribe antibiotics and other pharmaceuticals. If you have a population of viruses and a specific antibody against the virus, then those naturally occurring mutants that are not recognized by the antibody could have a replication advantage. It is also possible that the vaccine could help select for new strains of an infection, but not new organisms. It has not yet happened with the vaccine-preventable illnesses, but it is a potential effect of vaccines. Vaccine selecting for new mutants has been looked at for hepatitis B vaccine and found not to be an issue. And for most vaccine-preventable illnesses, the organism has not changed in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years as a result of the vaccine. In HIV, there's an ongoing interaction between the immune response and the virus, driving mutations that escape the immune system and, in some patients, leads to a marked increase in HIV replication and a clinical decline. Oh, wait. This is a natural infection. It should be better than a vaccine. This shouldn't happen. It's the vaccines that do this. Now, there is nothing unique about the vaccine response acting as environmental pressure on the evolution of infections. The response from natural infections should be the same. I would wonder, since the response to a natural infection is broader, with antibodies being made to numerous parts of the infection rather than the few key antibodies provided by the response to the vaccine, whether or not a natural infection could lead to a faster mutation rate. It hasn't happened yet, but our ability to easily follow the evolving genetics of infection is in its infancy. As a rule in the microbial world, the more intense the stress, the faster and more varied the mutations. For example, more antibiotics lead to faster development of antibiotic resistance in E. coli, not its delay. And that brings us to the ninth and last NASG uh, question. Could you please provide scientific justification as to how a vaccination can target a virus in an infected individual who does not have the exact viral configuration or strain the vaccine was developed for? Mr. Black and White, antibody response is not all or nothing. There is a gradient of response between the developed antibody and the site to which it is directed. A good example of this has been the H1N1 influenza. 
people exposed to strains of this virus in the first half of the century have antibodies that is partially protected for the 2009 strain. Why is that? Well, there's a slight difference between the antigenic properties of the 2009 strain and the one from the turn of the century. Yet the antibody has a partial affinity for the 2009 strain of H1N1, and if you have that antibody, you're less likely to die. Quote, over 75% of confirmed cases of novel H1N1 occurred in persons less than 30, with a peak incidence in the age range 10 to 19. Less than 3% of cases occurred in patients over 65, with a, oh, here's the word, gradation in incidence between the ages 20 and The sequence data indicates that the novel H1N1 is most similar to H1N1 viruses that circulated before 1943. Novel H1N1 lacks glycosylation sites on the globular head of the hemagglutinin near antigen regions, a pattern shared with the 1918 pandemic strain and the H1N1 viruses that circulated until the early 1940s. Later H1N1 viruses progressively added new glycosylation sites likely to shield antigenic epitopes, while T-cell epitopes were relatively unchanged. The conclusion, in this evolutionary context, original antigenic sin exposure should produce an immune response increasingly mismatched to novel H1N1 in progressively younger persons. We suggest that it is this mismatch that produces both the gradation in susceptibility and unusual toxicities, end quote. Gradation. The world is not all or nothing. The better the antibody fit for the epitope, that's where the antibody binds, the better the effect. But it doesn't have to be all or nothing. A partial fit is better than no fit. Maholovic sounds like an evolution denier who would ask, what good is half an eye? What good is half a wing? What good is half a brain? He finishes, quote, I have never encountered one pro-vaccine advocate, whether medically or scientifically qualified, who could answer even one, he's not going to 12-year-olds, let alone nine of these questions. One or all of the following will happen when debating any of the above questions. They will concede defeats and admit that they are stumped. They will attempt to discredit unrelated issues that do not pertain to the question. They will formulate their response and rebuttal based on historical arguments and scientific studies that have been disproved over and over again. Not one pro-vaccine advocate will ever directly address these questions in an open, mainstream venue. End quote. Well, I'm medically and scientifically qualified. I am neither stumped nor defeated. I and my 12-year-old know how to search PubMed for medical information. My response was directed specifically to the questions. My arguments were based on modern studies that a 12-year-old can find in less than a minute, none of which have been disproved once, much less over and over. Medicine by Declaration Science-Based Medicine, where I originally wrote this, is an open mainstream venue. So, 
Them's the answers to the nine Nazgul, or, I mean, questions. They are wraiths of little substance. I do feel like I have just won Jeopardy playing against Professor R.J. Gumby. Where's the honor in that? And people wonder why I question the wisdom of allowing naturopaths to function as primary care providers. A slightly modified text of this podcast can be found over at Science-Based Medicine. This is the end of Quackcast. Farty far. Don't forget to participate in my expanding worldwide multimedia empire. There's my writings over at Science-Based Medicine. There's my PUSCast, my every other week review of the infectious disease literature. There's my Gobbit O Pus my infectious disease podcast. There's Rubor Dolor Kalor Tumor, my infectious disease blog over its Medscape. And finally, my iPhone, iTunes, iPad application. But more importantly, I have a ravenous ego that demands to be fed. Please go to iTunes and write me a glowing review of the Quackcast. Otherwise, see y'all next time. Bye-bye and bye-bonds.